This morning we continue our series on hope and I am really delighted that we have a special guest speaker who is our very own Maurice Howells. So come and join me, Maurice. Now, many of you will know Morris and Gail. They have been life group leaders here. Morris serves in our storehouse. Um, he's recently been part of our um, theology group that's been meeting on a Monday afternoon. And in kind of conversations with him, um, I have discovered that he is a guy who has a real love for the Bible. Um, he's a brilliant communicator. And um, I'm sure that his passion for the Bible and for Jesus is going to come across to us today. So no pressure. <laughs> But you're amongst friends here, and so thank you for coming to share with us. Thank you. Well, good morning. morning. So this is continuing our theory, theory, series, on Multiply Hope. Um, Nigel started it a couple of weeks ago, and then Joe continued it at the carol service. So if you missed out on those two talks, they're still available online. So, Advent, one week to go, one week to Christmas, the waiting's nearly over, isn't it? Which I guess means that probably the school nativity play season's probably about finished now. So, I'd just like, on a show of hands, how many of you have ever been a character in a school nativity? Don't worry, you're not volunteering for anything. (laughs) Well, that's, yeah, probably a good three quarters, I guess. So how many of you got the starring roles? How many were Mary or Joseph? Oh, a much more select group. Well done. Well, I was a Robin. I was the shortest child in the school. And the only shorter part in the play was Jesus. And that was already being played by a baby plastic doll. And then, when I grew in wisdom and stature... I was then the innkeeper, because I also had way the loudest voice. And I can remember my line, there is no room in the inn. Which, I'm only really telling you that by way of my credentials to talk to you today (laughs) on the Christmas story and Jesus' hope of the world through the eyes of the Magi. But before we look at that, I'd like to just have a quick refresh on what we mean by hope. Because hope always has two parts. It's expectation and desire. And you have to have both to have hope. So, I suppose a simple example of that, at Christmas, there will be presents and there will be Brussels sprouts. Now, children will hope for presents, but might not hope for Brussels sprouts. Both are anticipated, only one is desired. (laughs) And of course, hope. Hope is something that the confidence in our hope is how, how much we expect that it's going to happen, how eager we are for it, and what our confidence level is. So if hope is based on a promise, then it's how much we trust the person making the promise, and what's their capability to deliver on that promise? Are they able to do it? So our confidence level in a promised hope is how well do we know them and how well do we trust them? So with God, we can hope, our hope can grow more. 
the more we know him and the more we trust him. And, of course, hope. Hope is always looking to the future. Hope in the now is always for the not yet. Hope is for the things that haven't yet happened. Because when either the hope for event happens or doesn't happen, hope is either fulfilled or lost. But we don't hope after the stage when it becomes reality. So for any gift, hope is always the part of the gift we receive before it arrives. So now I want to enter the Magi's story, the wise men's story. The story of the three kings, as it's often called. And let's look at their hope. But through the story, maybe see some similarities with our own experiences. Now, the Bible narrative is only in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. It's quite a short account, just over 400 words. Yet it's so familiar to us, isn't it? From nativity plays, from cards, from carols, from wrapping paper, even from crowns in, uh, Christmas, car- in Christmas crackers. And it's readings we hear at the Christmas season. So I think I can probably do it quite quickly. Three kings riding camels across a desert, following a star to find a stable where the baby Jesus is lying in a manger and some local shepherds have rocked up too. I think my job's done. We can have an early coffee. Except. The traditional telling of the story is actually picked up details we think are in the gospel account but aren't actually written there. Firstly, they weren't kings. They were wise men or magi. And we're not told there were three of them. We just know three of the gifts they brought. So that's one gone. It's unlikely they rode on camels. Camels were for cargo. Important men travelled on Arabian horses. And for most of the journey, they didn't follow the star. It reappeared for the last part of their journey. And the timing of their journey... They certainly didn't arrive alongside the shepherds on the night Jesus was born. It was a minimum of a couple of months after that, based on the timings in Luke and Matthew's Gospels taken together. Now, I'm not highlighting those things to be pedantic. (laughs) Some people are thinking, oh, yes, he is. (laughs) No, but it's so, if we can, that we can come to this familiar story afresh. Walk in their footsteps, see it if we can through their eyes. So now let's look at what Matthew tells us. Firstly, it was hope given. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So who were the Magi? Well, I've said they weren't kings, but they were important figures in a royal court. Astronomers, academics, priests, magicians, dream interpreters. Those roles in government weren't separated in those days. Maybe, perhaps, they're still not. (laughs) 
But they came from the east. And again, we don't know for exactly where. Scholars debate whether it's Persia or Assyria. But why did they link a new star in the night sky with the birth of a king of the Jews? And why did they believe that a new king of the Jews was big news worth a long journey? Because politically, the king of the Jews, well, he was a puppet king of a tiny nation state completely under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Now, a new Caesar born in Rome, that's big news. King of the Jews, not so much. Well, the most likely clue is the Jews were forcibly dispossessed of their land over 500 years before this and transported off to Babylon. And at that time, the Jewish prophet Daniel rose to become the chief of all the Magi in Babylon. And that's recorded in the book of Daniel in chapter 2. So his prophecies and other Jewish prophets, like Isaiah, would have become known among the Magi community. And the majority of Jews didn't return from exile. So knowledge of those prophecies would have remained known in those lands. Prophecies of a future king who would govern not the Jewish, just the Jewish people, but the whole world. So maybe, did they interpret the star rising from Isaiah's prophecy? Bear with one moment. I've now just clicked out of my notes. And we're back. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the people. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. But by whatever means they knew, and whatever they understood, clearly they sensed something momentous was promised and was now going to happen. Something they now anticipated and they were eagerly waiting for. More than just news of the event, but something that gripped them and caused their hope to bubble up within them. Because they weren't content to just marvel at a new phenomenon in the sky. They hoped to see the real life reality down on the ground. And their hope of finding this king led them to plan and travel a journey of probably about 900 miles, taking many weeks. Hope had resulted in detailed planning and costly action. So hope wasn't just a nice warm feeling. It was the urge for a radical change to their plans. So they set off in hope. I mean, did their hope weaken as the discomfort of travel carried them weary day after day into that trip? And you know, observing the star was receding a bit back into their memory. I think it might have for me. But the Magi tell Herod why they've travelled, what they've hoped for. Because they've not travelled as journalists to record the event, not as academics to study the event, not as tourists to experience the event, but as worshippers to become part of the event in adoration. That is what sustained their hope, seeking to worship. But then their hope was redirected. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he 
called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. So foreign dignitaries, accompanied by support staff, and probably with armed escorts, arrived in Jerusalem looking for a new king. Now that's not a cosy, sentimental Christmas nativity scene. It's a threatened destabilization of power. It's the overthrow of government. So not everyone was filled with the Magi's hope or anticipation. The news shook the status quo. King Herod and all Jerusalem with him. That shorthand for the political and ruling classes, the priests and the courtiers. Because those with the stake in the existing kingdom, they would be disturbed. So if you notice, the Magi didn't ask Herod to see his son, a future king. They're looking for a child who is already the rightful king, born as king. If the child they are seeking is the true king of the Jews, Herod isn't. Because Jesus didn't become king when he grew to be a man, when he was baptised, when he had his public ministry, even when he was crucified and raised from the dead, he was born as king. And yes, throughout his life, he showed us what his kingship and his kingdom looked like. So, I mean, I wonder, did the Magi's hope fade a little when they didn't find a king in the centre of things at the royal palace? Were they confused as to what they'd heard? Did they doubt their sign? Doubt their interpretation of a royal birth? Well, we don't know. It doesn't say they did, but I would have. But then their hope was refreshed. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them till it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. So after they leave Herod, they receive another sign. The star reappeared to give them direction. Well, why was that? Well, reading Luke and Matthew's timelines together shows it was now at least a couple of months after the birth, and the family were actually now back in Nazareth. So Bethlehem is five miles south of Jerusalem, whereas Nazareth is 70 miles to the north. So as they set off following Herod's instruction towards Bethlehem, the star reappeared. It's of God's pantomime moment. It's of the, look, he's behind you, <laughs> to redirect them. So when they saw the star again as a fresh sign, that's why they were overjoyed. God gave them fresh hope when they needed it, directing them to where their hope would be fulfilled. They hadn't misinterpreted or imagined it because the Magi chose to follow God's direction, not Herod's. And then their hope was fulfilled. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. 
Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Well, you might expect them to have been a little underwhelmed when they arrived at the house. Because after attending Herod's palace, now they'd arrived somewhere more like this. I mean, what did the neighbours think? Because, but Jesus will not be offended if I say he was a very ordinary baby with a working class mother. His ordinary, authentic humanity is the truth of Emmanuel, which means God with us. God in solidarity with the very ordinary, the very us. Because the Magi believed the prophetic sign they had followed. And their hope to find Jesus was now fulfilled. And they bowed and worshipped. The gifts they gave continued their worship. Gold in recognition of kingship. Frankincense in recognition of deity. And prophetically myrrh, a fragrance used to anoint the dead. So their worship was in fact a declaration of fresh and future hope. In worshipping, they're glimpsing the future of Jesus the Saviour. Jesus the King of all creation. And they returned home with that hope. Because of course, the Magi weren't seeking hope. They were seeking Jesus. Hope was their companion and encouragement on the journey. Finding Jesus was always the destination. Now, we don't know if ever they heard the next chapters of the epic story. They certainly wouldn't have accepted, expected the sort of kingdom that Jesus proclaimed. Even his close followers didn't get that until after his death and resurrection. So, why did Matthew record this story for us? Well, it wasn't just to satisfy our curiosity at some rather strange events, not to give us a few more pictures for our Christmas cards and to pad out the number of characters in the nativity play. He wanted to see that Jesus, King of the Jews, is much bigger than that. Because the first ones to worship are these outsiders, Gentiles, non-Jews. Right from the start, God's plan includes all of us. And Matthew uses this title, King of the Jews, to link together the baby born in the Christmas story with a man who suffers and dies at Easter. Because the King of the Jews is only used at the start and finish of Matthew's Gospel account. And between these two declarations, Matthew shows us through the words and actions of Jesus what this king and his kingdom looks like. It's a kingdom where power is never expressed in violence, where authority is never used for privilege, where the disadvantaged and the excluded are honoured citizens, and the job description of the king is identical to a servant. But the next time Matthew uses the title King of the Jews is at the end of Jesus' life on earth, in chapter 27. And it's not used in worship. It's used in accusation by Pontius Pilate at his trial. It's then used in mockery and abuse by the Roman soldiers. And finally, the proclamation is nailed with him to a cross, all to read as the proven verdict to justify torture and brutal execution. So Jesus' coronation as King of the Jews is marked with a crown of thorns, and the throne he ascends is to be lifted up in agony on a cross. But it is right here 
in this unspeakable brutality that we most clearly see what Jesus' kingdom really looks like. Because Jesus, the true king, is a servant willing to suffer and endure, who faithfully completed his mission to show us exactly what God is like. He showed us in his crucifixion Father God's unconditional love, fully giving of himself, suffering with us, completely and without limit, continuing to forgive. And of course, at this point, hope appeared lost, with no way back. But on that first Easter Sunday, two of Jesus' followers were travelling from Jerusalem. They weren't travelling with the hope that the Magi had around 30 years before. They trudged home from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus and met the risen Jesus, but didn't immediately recognise him. Their account to him of the recent events, I think, is one of the saddest responses in the whole Bible. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But we had hoped. Their hope had been pinned on a person. They knew he'd been killed. and Their hope had died with him. But as Jesus shared food, hoping God's promised rescue was spectacularly reignited in recognition. Jesus was alive and their hope for restoration was reborn based on what they could now see. Now, I suppose Jesus could have revealed himself to them earlier in that journey. He could have spared them the pain of speaking out their disappointment. But it's okay to tell God when our hope is gone. He can handle our disappointment. The honesty of telling him we have no hope is a place his Holy Spirit can gently meet us with fresh revelation of Jesus, who perfectly shows us the goodness and trustworthiness of our God. Because hope is the thread that stitches the whole Bible together. It's not a rule book, a historic cautionary tale, or a self-help manual. No, the Bible is the epic story of hope based on God's love. The arc of the story is how God's love created the whole cosmos for love's sake. The plot features human downfall, but right from the start, hope is given to wait for God's rescue plan and restoration. The hope is fulfilled when God's love becomes flesh and blood in Jesus Christ, whose life climaxes in crucifixion and renewed life. God then confirmed through the gift of his Holy Spirit the still future hope that his self-giving love is at work to ultimately bring the whole universe back into harmonious union with himself. So the hope of the church is that one day every knee will bow and every tongue speak out that Jesus is King and God will in restorative judgment renew all of his creation. So we wait expectantly in hope. But I believe our hope is not at its centre rooted in future events, however glorious. It's not, it's not centred in those things. Our deepest hope is the security of being extravagantly loved by God, regardless of anything and everything that might or might not occur the hope of an unbreakable relationship because we are loved.
Loved without but, loved without and, loved without exception, loved full stop. And this was the Apostle Paul's hope, tested and demonstrated through his amazing life experiences that led him to encourage us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor the future, any powers, height nor depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death nor life, the big things we all face in every moment right now and even through death and beyond. Angels nor demons, neither the messengers that cheer us on nor those whispering voices that might scare us in the dark of night. Present nor the future, that's what you're facing right now and whatever the future might hold. Any powers, whether they be the powers of authority, the subtle powers of pressure from relatives, friends and colleagues, the powers of habit or addiction. Height nor depth, whether life's going well and you feel up there on cloud nine, or whether you're in deep, dark depression and can see no way back. Anything else in all creation. And just in case Paul thinks he's missed anything, he nails it with that one. That covers the lot. And of course, we ourselves are part of all creation. We can't even separate ourselves from the love of God, even if we were to try to do so. Well, can I echo Paul's certain hope? Well, in all honesty, I was a bit hesitant to include this verse as a quotation today, because I have to humbly acknowledge there are those in this room who have faced and are facing these challenges more starkly than I ever had, and I acknowledge that. But I know that even though I don't always respond with such confident hope in every situation, in my heart, I know it's true. And I ask God's Spirit to breathe more of this hope into me, into all of us, day by day. So, as we head towards a conclusion, let's step back into the Magi story and take stock where each of us might identify with their journey. Maybe you feel you're looking at a dark sky and you haven't even seen a star to give you any hope as yet. Or maybe you've set off with hope on a journey, but you're now getting a bit wary. The journey seems quite endless and you know you just need some fresh hope. Or maybe you're confused that your hopes led you to what seems to be the wrong place. And you're asking the question, what next? Or you've received recent encouragement that has caused your hope to rise again and you're wanting to step into and experience more of that. Or maybe you're resting in a place of intimate worship and sensing, yeah, there's, there's more still to hope for. Or, like those early followers of Jesus, trudging along the Emmaus Road, have things not worked out as you anticipated or understood, and you now whisper what can seem very lonely words, I had hoped. I'll give a, a brief example from back in my own family history. My wife Gail's first pregnancy ended in a late miscarriage. And when she was pregnant again, it was an incredibly difficult pregnancy. It constantly looked right the way through as if she would miscarry. And we, we received the promise from God that the baby would be the visible evidence of the goodness of God. 
And he was safely born. Hope was fulfilled. Then, at six weeks, he developed severe eczema that continued until he was nine years old, and it didn't finally go completely until secondary school age. Now, eczema, it's an inflammatory skin condition. It causes constant scratching and itching, blisters, bleeding, and skin infections. And our son David, he had it as bad as it gets, really. I mean, we, we gave permission for his picture to be used in a medical textbook. And when he was in a, a small child in his pushchair out at Paulton's Park, I think that's now Peppa Pig World, isn't it? But he was there, a stranger asked Gail if he'd been badly burned in a fire. I mean, it was excruciating as parents to see his constant distress and discomfort and being powerless to help. And of course, it's a very visible condition. It challenged God's declaration that he was a visible evidence because physically, he just didn't look it. So our hope was then redirected into seeking healing. And we knew and prayed back to Father God that David was the visible evidence of the goodness of God because actually we just knew deep down that he was. And we learned through that period of years the truth that David's healing was up to God, not down to us. Now, whether his healing was miraculous or natural in the end, I don't know. I mean, all healing is a gift of God. There isn't really time to unpack any more of that story today, other than to say that our son, now 36, is coming to us at Christmas, so the visible evidence of the goodness of God will be in our house on Christmas Day. Now, that's just our example, but whichever of those examples of hope that you identify most with, I identify all of us that our hope, however strong or weak, isn't rooted in a how, a when, or a why. It's all in a who. As Peter wrote to the early church, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Our hope is alive and he's called Jesus. So wherever on the journey you most identified with, hope, like everything, is a gift. If you need fresh hope, ask Father God for his good gift, a fresher deeper revelation of Jesus. So to finish, I want to pray the words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the early Christians in Rome. I'd already prepared for today before I heard both Nigel and Joe end with this same Bible quotation over the last two weeks. So it seems to me to be worthy of another repetition. For all of us, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Wow. Thank you, Morris. It's not often we get a round of applause after a sermon, do we? 
but I think that was such a beautiful expansion of hope and the truths of the Bible and who Jesus is, so thank you. I wonder, Rachel, could we go back a slide, please? Would you be able to put the slide up about the, where it says about the Magi? Go back one from there, I think it is. That's the one. Because we have plenty of time this morning to respond. And I wonder what it was that caught your heart, as Morris was sharing with us. Maybe today you are somebody who just doesn't know Jesus, hope as a person. And today is a wonderful day to get to know him. The invitation is there. But maybe one of these little kind of thoughts is where you find yourself at today. You don't have hope. You need fresh hope. You're confused. You're celebrating because you're encouraged. You want more hope. Or you've just lost hope. So why don't we just have a few minutes in quiet and just reflect and think about which one of these categories suits you. (laughs) And then I'd love to invite the band up to join us after that.